Hey, everyone. I'm so excited to share our podcast has been nominated in Boise Weekly's annual Best of Boise contest. And while it's an honor to be nominated, I have to admit it would be even more fun to win. If we've helped you connect to the city you love, go to the link in the show notes to vote for us by May 23rd. Thanks, Boise. Today on CityCast Boise, feels like there's been a month of news this week, but it's finally Friday. Boise State Public Radio's Jimmy Dawson is here to help us zoom out on the legislative session, which just wrapped. We're talking outsized influence of far-right groups, how we made national news again, and why the Antiques Roadshow in Boise is just perfect. It's Friday, April 7th. I'm Emma Arnold, and this is what Boise's talking about. Hi, Jimmy. Hi, Frankie. Hey, Emma. Hey, what's up? It's Friday. It's Friday. <laughs> and what a week it has been. Uh, indeed. Just a little one. Just a little week. Just uh, all the news in the whole world uh, in one week. Let's like zoom out a little here. The legislature's, uh, fingers crossed, just about to wrap up here. And why don't we kind of just talk a little more in general? And Jimmy, we'll start with you. What's something kind of different you've noticed this year that maybe wasn't on your, your radar as a possibility? Yeah. So we obviously had this huge turnover that we've talked about, you know, on this show <laughs> and we've been talking about for a long time where almost half of the entire legislature was either made up of brand new people or people who switched from the House to the Senate. And something that was kind of interesting was usually, I don't know whether it's like sort of the whole seniors picking on the freshmen uh, situation where the more longer term lawmakers will be like, sit down and shut up, kid. Like, you know, don't say anything. Don't debate. Uh, don't bring any bills. That's typically how it's kind of been, whether it's overt or not. But this year you had like all of the new people just bringing tons and tons and tons of bills, some of which did pass. Uh, a lot of them didn't. And a lot of them had to be rewritten several times just because of either drafting errors or compromises that needed to be made. You know, on one hand, I wasn't expecting that. On the other hand, it's like, I get it. You're only in there for two years. Why would you wait out your first entire year to, to not do anything? Because the possibility is you might not be there. Yeah, it feels like that. I think that's a really apt observation. And you following the legislature so closely, of course, you would notice that. I guess I noticed it, too, without paying as close of attention. Like, I think about Senator Scott Herndon, how often we heard of him bringing forward, you know, very controversial culture war type bills, you know, things that he thinks his his constituents sent him to do. Yeah. And, you know, we saw the Senate move so much further to the right after last year's election. And it seemed to manifest in a couple of different ways, you know, one being that you could used to be able to kind of count on the Senate to be like, well, those are interesting ideas, House. But what were the other ways that manifested this year? I like the way you put that uh, instead <laughs> of just, nah, we're, we're no. going to slam that in our desk drawer and never talk about it again. Um, 
Yeah, that was certainly one of the ways for sure. Uh, You know, we obviously saw both the trans healthcare bill for minors, uh, you know, actually get a hearing this year and subsequently pass and is now, uh, you know, signed into law. You saw education savings accounts or, you know, opponents call them vouchers that originated in the Senate. Uh, The Senate Education Committee was stacked with those new, more conservative Republicans who actually got it on the floor, but it got defeated on the floor itself. So you you did see it there. They had some wins for sure, I would say, and they're they're slowly chipping away at what was once kind of the gatekeeping uh, chamber. Can we talk about Dorothy Moon? You know, she was a former House member herself and now is the new chairwoman of the Republican Party. And I'm wondering how how has the party's influence been felt this year? Yeah, I would say very heavily. So she came in last summer, took out Tom Luna, who, depending on how long you've been in Idaho, uh, you may remember him from his days as, uh, you know, superintendent of public instruction um, and his controversial Luna laws that got overturned. But, uh, you know, he was viewed as, you know, certainly a conservative Republican, but Dorothy Moon, uh, her husband is like a national John Birch Society board member. Uh, She is very, very far right uh, wing conservative and has really organized, I think, a lot of uh, a more, you know, rightward tilt even more so within the party. The thing with that is, is you have these very low key offices that are elected precinct committeemen, party officials, all of these people that are part of this insular group that you know, you don't really gather much attention, but they're the ones who are influencing all of this. And so they're flexing their power by forcing uh, or at least trying to force the party's platform, which is much more conservative than like the National Republican Party platform, for example, trying to force lawmakers into abiding by that 100 percent unless they declared like, you know, I don't agree with this or whatever before uh, they got elected. Some people might call them hall monitors uh, at the legislature. You have a House and Senate liaison where they're basically reminding legislators, hey, you're a Republican. This is what the platform says. And if you don't vote for it, mm, you might get written up. And we've seen that with, for example, the the library bill and, and a few others where some legislators have gotten censured or had votes of no confidence taken against them just in the past few weeks. Yeah, the actual party has had maybe more influence than normal. What other groups, you know, we think about the Idaho Freedom Foundation, uh, what other kind of groups, organizations have had kind of outsized influence, would you say, over all this session? Yeah, I mean, of course, the Freedom Foundation, which is, uh, you know, the far right group that painted themselves as libertarians, but have kind of morphed into more of like a, you know, just generic far right uh, Christian dominated viewpoint. Um, where they score bills, and if you don't vote the way they want you to, then they'll rank you accordingly. Then, of course, you have the Idaho Family Policy Center, which has been, uh, you know, a thing for a couple years now. Uh, Blaine Kanzati, their president, has been writing bills uh, mostly around abortion in the early days, but he was behind the library bill, the trans healthcare bill, and maybe a couple others that didn't quite make it across the finish line, but certainly has had a lot of outsized influence uh, in in the arena. Yeah, I want to talk about Blaine Kanzati, actually. Uh, speaking of, uh, I want to, the Idaho Capital Sun had this piece recently about the thousands of calls and emails that Governor Little received about HB 71, the anti-gender affirming care for a minor's bill. And 
in this article, Blaine Kanzati kind of brags that the Idaho Family Policy Center did a nearly, and I'm quoting here, nearly $5,000 robocall with an automatic patch through to the governor's phone lines, which I thought was really interesting. First of all, that he would just kind of come out and say that and, and brag about it. But I knew a lot of people who were very against that bill who were not able to get through to talk to the governor and called, you know, five, six times, tried uh, over the course of an hour to call and never got through and ended up emailing. So I thought that was really interesting that he just kind of straight out came out and said, yeah, we have it. We patched through straight to the governor's office with this robocall. Speaking of outsized influence. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And and that's the thing is like, you're right. Usually these sorts of organizations or people who are very involved behind the scenes in whether it's writing legislation or just like convincing people to vote how they want them to, they usually aren't upfront and out about it. Um, so that that's certainly something that we aren't used to seeing, especially in Idaho. People usually want to stay behind the scenes instead of bragging like, hey, this is what we did. And this was our influence. It was our bill. And we got it. We got it signed into law. Well, and of course, it also brings up like, how much is the governor listening, you know, weighing a decision of whether or not to veto a bill based on how many calls or emails he's getting. And then also, are some of those emails and calls coming from people out of state? Um, I think it could be hard to suss out exactly how many are actually coming from Idahoans who are concerned about something, which brings up so many questions about influence uh, and just like where our state is headed at this stage with with this like really strong influence from the Idaho Family Policy Center, which explicitly I'm going to use the word Christian nationalist group. And what I mean by that is they literally want to form our laws around a Christian, a very specific version of Christianity, I should say as well, a very conservative view of it. And like, what does that mean uh, for Idaho going forward? Well, uh, the ACLU has already said that it's going to sue to block the trans health ban. Jimmy, it does feel like we're kind of starting to see this pattern every year where, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it, what it's felt like is you see a bunch of culture war bills everyone knows are legally indefensible. They get passed and signed by the governor. And it's just to appease Dorothy Moon, IFF, these people, even though it's sort of widely discussed and widely known that a lot of these are legally indefensible, will cost the state a ton of money. Am I wrong to be seeing a pattern here? No, not necessarily. I did this story a long time ago, but uh, the Constitutional Defense Fund uh, is this like <laughs> little known bank account that the state has that traditionally was supposed to be used to like quote unquote, fight government overreach right back in the 90s, uh, when it was mid 90s, when it was established, uh, that was what was used to fund the lawyer to reach the nuclear settlement agreement with um, Department of Energy and INL and, and that stuff. Um, but ever since then, it's pretty much, you know, just been used to pay out legal fees for, uh, let's say, the same-sex marriage ban uh, back in, I think, 2015, um, several abortion issues, uh, all of this stuff. And Governor Brad Little actually told me earlier this year that he does not want to use that anymore as, as kind of like the, the piggy bank for paying out, uh, you know, the, the slap on the back of the hand, like, oh, nope, you, you passed that unconstitutional law, now we have to pay for it. He wants to actually get back to the original purpose of it. But yeah, that, that's what one of the original sponsors of that legislation uh, told me. He's like, basically, they want to use it as a uh, campaigning tool. 
you know, and, and they're using taxpayer money to to do that. God, I can't believe that story that you did was that long ago. You need to do an updated version of it. <laughs> yeah. <to me>. yeah. <laughs> For yeah. sure. Yeah. Cause I'd be interested to know what's the, what's the dollar amount, you know, like, what are we talking here? It's, it's like three or $4 million, something. Yeah. In there. yeah. Yeah. There's been awesome reporting on this throughout, throughout, but it's like, this just continues to, to be a story uh, over the years. And maybe even it feels like it's accelerating a, a little bit too. Uh, speaking of bills that may have lawsuits against them, uh, we were in the national news again, as I feel like I get to say every week. <laughs> You're not wrong. <laughs> but we were in the news for this uh, abortion trafficking bill, uh, which the governor signed, and it pro- prohibits traveling with a minor to another state for an abortion or helping a minor obtain an abortion inducing drug without consulting one of their parents. So uh, what do we think of this? What do we think? Is a lawsuit inevitable on this one? Planned Parenthood told the Idaho Capital Sun, like, you know, somewhat somewhat recently, but not that, not as recent as, as this podcast is, uh, saying that they were going to sue. So it's a matter of time, I think, uh, before that. It is an issue where the governor thinks that it's not really encroaching on federal law because the act of concealing like getting an abortion for a minor without their parents' consent starts in Idaho. It's not going against any sort of federal interstate travel laws, which is exactly their arena. Congress can make laws on that. You know, you have people like uh, Senate Minority Leader Melissa Wintrow, who's worked with a whole lot of um, victims of sexual assault, uh, is is big into uh, pro-abortion rights, saying that this could have an effect on, you know, young girls who are assaulted by family members and they need an abortion, but they don't feel safe reporting it to police to get a legal abortion here. It could have all kinds of unintended consequences, whereas Governor Brad Little, when he signed it uh, and sent that transmittal letter, he's like, no, th- this is you know our purview after the states or the U.S. Supreme Court uh, overturned Roe v. Wade last summer. Yeah, I, I just want to add in that it seems like this session was about, oh boy, it really happened, uh, it being <laughs> the Supreme Court uh, doing what conservatives have wanted for years to have Roe fall. And, you know, there were even a couple committee members in, in different hearings. I, I don't remember the exact uh, representative or, or senator who said it, but even admitted, like, I never thought this would happen. And now they need to basically retroactively, because the, the trigger bans actually figure out how is this going to work in reality. We saw that with you know, their uh, attempts to uh, uh, make sure that doctors feel like they can perform life-saving care in this new landscape. And um, there's a little bit of, oh boy, okay, I guess uh, we got what we wanted, but um, now we need to actually (laughs) define some middle ground there. And like this trafficking bill just feels like it's the next step, the next, next, next step. And and that's a really interesting point, Frankie, because that kind of played out last week in committee for that bill in particular, because you had the head of one of the anti-abortion rights groups, uh, David Ripley. He was saying like, you know, there is a lot of friction within uh, the anti-abortion movement of how far is far enough? How many exceptions do we allow? Because you have some hardliners uh, like Representative Heather Scott, for example, who has repeatedly introduced legislation to make 
any abortion considered a murder in any circumstance. And there are those folks who are not fans of that sort of quote unquote cleanup legislation adding in like, oh, yeah, if you're a mom on chemotherapy and the chemo kills your baby or like you need to, uh, you know, have an abortion to keep going with your cancer treatment, um, then that's acceptable. And some people don't like that. Right. Don't expect this to be the last time you're you're hearing about it. As you said, Jimmy, that question of even for conservatives, are we going too far? Are we going to see electoral backlash because of this? Yeah, it makes me think you brought up Scott Herndon earlier, and he was really adamant and got some national attention for some of the things he said around uh, the fact that if somebody is raped and gets a baby, that's a blessing. And it's actually a great way to process the rape is to give birth. And uh, as usual, the only thing I have to say about that is I hate it. And uh, (laughs) it's really been very difficult to watch, very hard to watch. Like, you know, we we have two hospitals in Idaho right now who say that they're no longer going to be delivering babies. We're already starting to bleed medical medical care providers and and doctors are worried about it patients are worried about it so uh they can clarify all they want but the reality is is it's having consequences so fast something interesting i just got a text message uh saying that there are stickers all over the ladies restrooms in the capital uh with a qr code telling you how to get an abortion uh that were just put (laughs) up like within the last couple days uh apropos of our conversation (laughs) congrats whoever did that uh good for you keep up the good fight Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Frankie, uh, I feel like a theme we've seen sort of ongoing this last year or last couple years is like Boise versus the rest of the state. We have this uh, this bill we can't stop talking about from uh, House Majority uh, Leader Megan Blanksma. Yes, uh, which I think you said uh, is so anti car anti-sidewalk that a car must have written it or something which <laughs> yeah, just cracked yeah. me up um basically yeah this this bill which the governor has signed so it is law really is targeting highway districts uh now what county has a highway district Ada County. What city is <laughs> does not have ownership of, uh, of their own streets because the Ada County Highway District runs them? That's Boise. Um, so the question of how will this affect ACHD's ability um, to add more bike lanes or to do upgrades to sidewalks or add sidewalks in so many places in Boise still don't have sidewalks, you know? And so the question of like, being a walkable city, being a bikeable city, that's a huge initiative of Mayor McLean, of uh, the city of Boise, around climate change uh, initiatives. And so I think, you know, this is just one of many, many, many examples of the state exerting its influence over Boise. We've seen it years in the past. We definitely saw it a lot this session as well. 
Well, let's let's end on something fun. Uh, I don't know if either of you have been watching the Antiques Roadshow that was shot in Boise last year. The first episode aired Monday. And what a roller coaster, you two. Uh, <laughs> I really, I encourage people to watch it. It was so fun. Um, on the first episode, I saw several people I knew. Shout out Stephanie. Pat, loved your vase. Um, uh, no, nobody like in the big money, you know, things. But there was a moment in there. I'm not going to spoil anything else for anybody because I, because really there's some stuff that you're like, what? This person yes. has had this this whole time. This is wild. There's some really interesting items. But there's the the most Boise thing that happens where a woman brings this item given to her uh, by her grandfather. And uh, while she's talking, she says, oh, you know, my uh, grandfather was Dutch. He helped um, liberate something like I don't remember the whole story. But World War Two. Yeah, 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 yeah. And one Woman, of the volunteers yeah. is like, oh, my grandfather was the general whose life you saved. Yes. And it's so voicey where you're like, of course, we know each other here. Of yes. course we do. And it's the it's the most mind blowing thing and the sweetest, sweetest story of how she has this family story, which sounds like baloney of how her yep. grandfather saved this famous general. And even while she's saying it, you're like, well, that's, that's clearly that's not true. That didn't really happen. And then the guys, they're like, that's my grandpa. They talk about this, your grandpa and how he saved. And it's it's so great. It's so fascinating. So it's perfect. And I told this story uh, for the newsletter and I have talked about it on Twitter a little, but um, my parents were there. And my sweet, adorable parents, I had asked them, like, oh, do you think we'll see you? Which, by the way, first episode, no parent sighting, just so people know. Okay, okay. Did not see them. Two more to go. Two more yeah. to go. Two I was chances. eagle eyes. I was watching the background of everything. But my mom was like, well, I think we could be in one of the later shots because uh, the whole time they, they were standing in line and my, they had brought this uh, what my mom describes as a very gay painting, <laughs> which you can see on my Twitter or Instagram. The erotica, yeah. It, it's it's not as erotic as I thought it would be. Yeah, and it's not even the super gay. It's more like erotic, I don't know, fantasy art. Yeah. Uh, mm -hmm. But by this artist, Fred Sparnell, who is, uh, was known in the 50s for doing a lot of gay erotic art. And my mom, uh, she got this painting at a yard sale. She adores it. And she was sure it was going to be worth so much money. So she brought it down. But they they had this covering over it that kept slipping off and they realized that they were in the back of what is clearly a big money. Like somebody <laughs> is getting their stuff appraised for quite a bit of money and they're in the back with this gigantic gay painting, the cover sliding off over and over. So they, money shot. they scoot it out of there. I want to see <laughs> so, that shirtless centaur. <laughs> the shirtless sexy centaur. So uh, she's like, oh, I hope we didn't ruin the shot. Like she's <laughs> not because of the painting, but more because she and my, my dad were arguing over whose fault it was that the covering's coming off because they've been married for 100 years and that's what you do. Oh, my God. So, yeah, super, super funny. Um, so keep your eye out for my parents and their gay painting if you're watching an Antique Roadshow. But also just watch oh. it, honestly. And there's lots of beautiful history stuff that the, the Roadshow yes. does about, um, you know, the old penitentiary and about the botanical gardens, about Idaho history in general. Just really, really fun stuff. So yes. uh, if you're feeling overwhelmed by the legislature and all these terrible new laws coming into effect watch some road show chill out look for my parents gay painting and just <laughs> like just try to remember that this is a and also just as they're interviewing people you're like it's it's been very 
tough this last session because it feels like all you see is like a lot of hate and a lot of anger and a lot of people who are, you know, pushing these culture war things. And then you're watching the roadshow and you're like, what a bunch of sweetie pies. Honestly, you forget that the Treasure Valley is filled with just a ton of sweetie pie people. So watch the roadshow is my advice. Shout out to Idaho Public Television. Shout out to public (laughs) media. Thank you for Antiques Roadshow. The Antiques Roadshow is a very special uh, part of my childhood. Um, I watched it all the time. I wanted to be an art appraiser. So I... (laughs) Why aren't you? (laughs) I know. I started... My first major was art history, and then I switched to English. Wah, wah. Uh, (laughs) But (laughs) you could be on Roadshow right now. Hey, it might be my second career. Or, like, maybe I can fuse journalism and Antiques Roadshow. That's my my dream. But honestly... Side hustle. Seriously, I watched the first half of the first episode, Emma, online, and... You are so right. Uh, speaking of ACHD, we were just talking about that. Totally saw ACHD uh, President Jim Hansen in the background oh, yeah. of one of the shots. Yep. So it's just, it's so sweet. And it's like, yep, we I, I completely recognize people I've seen at like the grocery store uh, on the show bringing their crap from their garage that's actually worth $10,000 yeah. or whatever. One of my favorites, I will do one spoiler, which is um, a shooting target by a guy with the last name Dickman. Yeah. Um, so sit with that. That's worth like 22K. Amazing. Yeah. That was a wild one. So good. So good. Is he also from Dick Shooter, Idaho? <laughs> Which is, for, for people who don't know, is an actual place. Yes. Wow. Dickman from Dick Shooter, Idaho. Uh, yeah. I That shooting gallery thing was so interesting and how most of them had been melted down during World War II. So they're super, super rare. Yeah, that was a really, really good one. Yes. Well, thank you, you two. This was a lot of fun and uh, very clarifying on some pretty heavy bills that people are trying to sort through right now. So, Jimmy, appreciate you being with us. And Frankie, thank you as always for joining me. Thanks for the decompression therapy. Yeah, Jimmy, uh, I hope you get some rest this weekend for sure after (laughs) this long session. (laughs) Thanks, Emma. That's all for today here on CityCast Boise. The show is produced by Frankie Barnhill, Evelyn Avitia, and me, Emma Arnold. Big thanks to AKL Mootman, who helped us out this week. Blake Hunter writes our Hey Boise newsletter, and our music is by Up Is The Down Is The. If you enjoyed our show today, leave us a review. It helps other people find us. We'll be back Monday with more stories from around the city. Bye. Jimmy, could you double check in your magic world of... In your uh, magic world. (laughs)